Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Despite spending his early political career as a European diplomat, Lord David Frost is now not the most popular figure in Europe. But was that his plan all along? I'm Jessica Elgott, Chief Political Correspondent of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. We have made progress in areas like trade, trading goods and services, transport, social security cooperation, EU programmes, participation and so on, uh, which is good. But nevertheless, big differences do remain. He has a background in the Foreign Office, a department not exactly known for Euroscepticism. But David Frost was the man that Boris Johnson wanted as his chief negotiator for exiting the European Union. Now elevated to the Lords and with a plum cabinet job dealing with the fallout from Brexit, Frost continues to ruffle EU feathers, especially when it comes to sorting out thorny issues like the Northern Ireland Protocol. So who is David Frost? To get to know a bit more about him, I spoke with The Guardian's Brussels correspondent Jennifer Rankin, Matthew O'Toole, a former civil servant and a current SDLP member of the Northern Ireland Assembly, and David Hennig, the UK director at the European Centre for International Political Economy, who in a previous life worked with Frost. Well, first of all, thank you ever so much for joining me. And I guess, David, we'll start with you. Um, You're probably the the person who spent the most personal time with David Frost because you worked with him. How would you describe him personally i worked with him for three years between 2011 and 2014 clearly that was a a lifetime ago in in many respects i'm not sure we knew that much more about him when we worked with him he wasn't the kind of guy who was taking the uh, the team to the pub every day or was you know the heart and soul of the uh, of the party he was very much uh, a civil servant of his rank clearly we had a lot of dealings with him he just struck me as a Pretty typical uh, senior civil servant. Got 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 on with the work. Clearly had his ambitions towards being ambassadors at various places then. We didn't know much about his politics. I knew he was right of centre. Is that unusual in a civil servant? Not, necess- not necessarily. It's probably the minority, but not there are, there are plenty of conservative supporters there. But yeah, in terms of sort of flavour, no, I don't think we knew that much about him even then. Jennifer, he's he's got a bit of an unusual path for Eurosceptic, hasn't he? He studied French at university, spent his early professional career in the Foreign Office, an ambassador in Copenhagen from quite a young age. It feels quite unusual way to become a Brexiteer. Yes, and certainly we don't associate uh, the Foreign Office as a hotbed of Euroscepticism, quite the opposite. But but it's quite an interesting question about as to when David Frost did become a Eurosceptic 
because by his own account, he dates his Euroscepticism way back to the early 90s when he was in Brussels working at UCREP uh, on uh, economic and financial policy for the UK government. And he says it's, it's in this period that he started to become disillusioned about the EU institutions. He, he certainly kept it to himself and people who knew him at the time, people who knew him, for instance, when he was ambassador to Denmark uh, more than 10 years later, didn't pick up any hint of any Euroscepticism uh, at all. So it seems that if he was a, a true Eurosceptic, it's something he nursed in secret until he left the Foreign Office in, in 2013. And even as late as May 2016, shortly before the EU referendum, he was extolling the virtues of the EU single market. That was when he was uh, in charge of the Scotch Whiskey Association. And he was very happy to talk about the importance of the of EU food and drink regulation and how it's helped uh, Scotch whisky makers sell their products all over the world. So, so then the nature of his Euroscepticism is is a bit is mysterious, and uh, certainly he's either it's something he's kept very quiet to himself over many many years, or it's something that's evolved uh, in in the much more recent past. Matthew, you you worked when you were working in Downer Street. How much was David Frost on the radar? How much was he influential? He wrote a pamphlet, I think, about how to negotiate sort of in the context of David Cameron's renegotiation was he was he seen as a kind of guru or just not really on the radar I, I mean I don't think he was in a sense his career is kind of the opposite of, of Boris Johnson's in in that Johnson is someone who about whom there is some doubt about the the deep sincerity of his Eurosceptic views and whether they how substantial they are and whether they're just simply um they have been a means to advance him at a particular moment or set of moments in his career. Um, and he's performed them very publicly and very theatrically, whereas David Frost obviously has, um, in a sense, had the opposite. It seems that he's had the opposite experience where his his Euroscepticism is something that has been, he claims, there there all along. But um, but he was, um, as the others have said, a, a kind of model of a, of a technocrat on the surface. Let's talk a little bit about him and Boris Johnson, maybe David and Jennifer. Obviously, they, they must, they probably met during that time they were stationed in, in Brussels in the 90s. And... Uh, he seems to be a bit of a kindred spirit with Johnson. He seems to be the only person left in Downing Street now who he really trusts, deeply trusts. Um, but he's not, that their personalities don't seem very alike. He's much less flamboyant. And as you say, Johnson seems to have principles that change like the wind in a way that David Frost has led, sort of guided him through his career. What, what, why do you think they've become such kind of firm allies? So I think that one of the, aspects of being a senior civil servant that, that people don't realise is that you have to be good at giving messages to ministers in the way they uh, want to hear them. That's vital to their progression. And clearly David Frost was good at that. I believe he, the two of them got closer when working with um, alongside each other at Open Europe before the, the referendum um, and before either, either of their Euroscepticism had become quite so uh, strong and obvious. And I think that... Frost clearly, I think, did um, his his civil service number of telling Johnson what he wanted to hear, but also showed a bit of flexibility. So I imagine that um, Boris Johnson didn't expect to hear this from David Frost. So in a way, Frost is is sort of playing Johnson, telling him uh, telling him things that uh, he doesn't expect from a civil servant, and that helps to to bring them closer together. He then becomes. Uh, Boris Johnson spad in the in the Foreign Office, where let's face it, Boris Johnson was not necessarily universally popular. So Frost may have seemed at that point to be a 
the ambassador or the ex-ambassador he could he could trust. I just think that um, for whatever reason, David Frost has been able to communicate with with Boris Johnson, and that I've heard from people at pretty close proximity that that's genuine. There's that you know Boris Johnson really does respect uh, David Frost, what he says, um, and David Frost obviously works hard to make sure he's saying the right things. Jennifer, set the scene for us in Brussels when it emerges, when Boris Johnson is is clearly going to be victorious in the Tory leadership election. We've been through a tumultuous Brexit period where everyone's lost, completely lost faith in in Theresa May's ability to pass any Brexit deal. And, you know, it emerges that that David Frost is going to be the negotiator, going to be the one trying, trying to salvage a deal. What's the reaction there? Initially, Brussels um, was rather flummoxed by David Frost. They really didn't know what to make of him because he was sort of less than a minister, but more than a civil servant. If if we go back to the period when he was appointed as chief negotiator in in 2019, and the EU is a very uh, protocol bound place. So there were questions about, you know, was he the equal of Michel Barnier, the EU chief negotiator? Was he he a David Davis or was he more of an Ollie Robbins, uh, Theresa May's chief negotiator? They really didn't know where to place him. But I think it became clearer in February 2020 when David Frost gave a speech to the Free University of Brussels where he set out his thinking. And this was an extremely unusual speech for a a civil servant to make. It's not just a statement of government policy and it's unimaginable that his predecessor Ollie Robbins would have given such a speech. So I I think then that they they realised that they were dealing with someone who really was Boris Johnson's envoy and had Boris Johnson's confidence. But at the same time, uh, they found him very difficult to deal with. He would go to the negotiations and he would he would simply just repeat and repeat that the UK was a sovereign country and he that he couldn't agree to what was being discussed and this cycle went on for months and months and I think uh, in comparison to to previous um, negotiators they found him very unconstructive and difficult to work with although there was eventually a deal but that was a deal that was unlocked by by Boris Johnson himself choosing to compromise and we didn't see any sign of that from from David Frost in the negotiating rooms. Matthew tell us a bit about his relationships I guess we're both in with Dublin and and also in Belfast. This was at about around the time that the relations with the DUP were were disintegrating. And how much was David Frost a, a player in that? Since the deal was done, the the withdrawal agreement, I'm not aware that he spent very much time in that period between July 2019, when he came into office with Boris Johnson, and the end of the year, whenever the deal. Uh, or the, the autumn, I suppose, when the deal was concluded and then uh, and then was able to be ratified um, following an election. Uh, I'm not uh, aware that he spent very much time uh, on the island of Ireland or, or on Irish issues generally. I do know that subsequently, and particularly this year, with the protocol having been implemented, he has spent more time here, particularly in Northern Ireland. Uh, and I'm, I, I may have to be honest, his, his role has not been particularly constructive. It seems to have been, rather than to to explain and help bed in and make work the deal that he was obviously responsible for concluding. Um, he has, uh, I think, encouraged certain groups in the idea that this deal uh, is fundamentally objectionable and can be picked apart. I think that comes back to his both his own preoccupation with the concept of sovereignty rather than the practice of sovereignty. And one of the most creative practices of sovereignty for the UK has been to find a creative solution to Northern Ireland, but also his, I think, not particularly deep engagement with the the challenge of the, the historic Irish question. 
David, do you think it's it's the case, and, and he's he's almost sort of said this publicly, hasn't he, that, that he viewed the, the Northern Ireland Protocol as just, just something to be got over with and done and dealt with afterwards once the deal had been passed. And that's sort of still how he views it, isn't it? He, he in the announcement in recent weeks, um, that he views it as that and he, you know, just can be something that's that's renegotiated now that we're out of the EU. Well, the Northern Ireland Protocol was clearly not David Frost's choice of how to handle Northern Ireland and Brexit up until really a week or two before Boris Johnson had his uh, had his chat with uh, Leo Varadkar. The government and David Frost were putting forward a completely different set of, of proposals that were all about open borders. They were still really working hard on alternate arrangements. My view with David Frost is what you see is the real truth. I think he genuinely thinks that the EU is overreacting, does not really need to protect its single market in in this way. Northern Ireland isn't so much of a problem. As such, what, we're, what we see then is just a sort of repetitive uh, situation towards Northern Ireland. So there's just a a fundamental uh, mismatch going on there. Jennifer, he's clearly going to, for for some time to come, be a fairly major player in Boris Johnson's government. He's got this cabinet ministerial position now, which he managed to extract after that that power struggle in number 10, um, which saw, you know, Dominic Cummings depart and him, you know, we hear threatened to go, but, but stay because he keeps this very, very large influence um you know for that for those for those torrid years 2016 to to 2019 it felt like brexit was almost impossible to achieve actually leaving the eu was impossible did he deserve some credit for being the negotiator who did make it happen ultimately did deliver on what the referendum said well, I, I would say that Brexit was never impossible, but it was impossible on the terms that had been promised by the proponents of Brexit and Boris Johnson first and foremost. So, so the, the deal that eventually emerged is very much on the, on the sort of scale of deals that were always possible. I mean, we should really talk about two deals because, of course, there was the divorce agreement and the eventual trade and cooperation agreement. And I, I don't think you can really see David Frost's fingerprints over the first part, over the, the divorce deal. And clearly, he's unhappy with the Northern Ireland Protocol, as we've just discussed. And when it comes to the trade and cooperation agreement, Yes, he was the he was the person on the on the spot who delivered that, and you can you could probably you could point to more particular things that where the the UK gained, perhaps for example, on a, getting particular concessions on electric cars, to choose one example. But I think the the overall. Uh, outcome of Brexit is is very much within the realms of the the possible and was something that you could have have charted out a few years earlier given the red lines that the UK set up from the very beginning of this process back in 2016. Matthew, clearly David Frost's reputation, I think it'd be fair to say, is still riding pretty high with Tory MPs. He's still seen over this side or, you know, within the Palace of Westminster as someone who got the deal done, who sort of ended the the moment of kind of national collective breakdown. Um, do you think that the Northern Ireland Protocol could still undo that reputation? Could he still, could it still be something that, that really undoes all of that reputation? It depends on who's, in whose judgment, whose judgment you're asking about, Jess, I suppose. Um, first of all, if it's the judgment of conservative backbenchers, then it may be that at some level, he, possibly he and Boris Johnson feel that the low level or, or even high level 
confrontation dispute with the EU is in some level at some level kind of uh, good for the reputation among a certain type of the, of the Tory backbenches. I mean, in terms of his his relationship with the protocol and uh, and whether he makes the protocol work, I have to say, I mean, I'm fairly, obviously, you know, I, I speak not just as a, a neutral commentator, as a participant in this, I'm fairly sceptical as to the view of the current crop of conservative backbenchers, with some decent honourable exceptions, it has to be said. I mean, his reputation certainly should, if he cannot find it within himself to resolve his issues with the European Union and to make the protocol work in a sensible way, then it should damage very profoundly his reputation. It's also worth saying very briefly, some of what David Frost done this year has been, I think in itself, destabilising. He seems to be determined to create a narrative around deep societal uh, and political uh, unrest. Um, uh, they've almost become a stakeholder in going to the EU and saying, look at the problems you're creating. Uh, that, I'm afraid, is deeply, deeply irresponsible. So if, if that continues, rather than just resolving the protocol and making it work in a way that's pragmatic and practical, then I don't think the judgment will be particularly kind to him. Whatever the views of Tory MPs are a very particular and possibly quite unrepresentative audience. David, I'll give the final words to you. What do you think David Frost wants his legacy to be? What's his ambition? What comes next for him? I think David Frost thinks that he is going to resolve the UK's relationship with the EU as the the lead negotiator. I think he's 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 seen this this opportunity come by and I think we'd all take this opportunity. A lot of people have said of David Frost that he may be motivated by um what happened previously in his government career. Sure, well now he's trying to to put it right. And there is that great fear, I think, among a lot of the people who are watching at the moment, that he's almost like the gambler who keeps who keeps chasing after uh, losses. That's the fear, is that he really wants to make all of this work. He's promised the Prime Minister he's going to make it work. And in doing so, he will, as Matthew ju- just put it, almost make it worse. And then he's be- going in danger of becoming more and more stubborn. So no doubt he sees the opportunity and I think he sees the um, his his chance to uh, to really resolve this relationship. So there's a lot of fear that he's not quite in the right place to deliver that. I think September is going to be rocky. That was fascinating. Thank you all ever so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Oh, thank you. And that's all from us this week as we bring an end to our summer series. Make sure to listen next week as we get ready for the end of recess and the start of conference season. But for now, I want to thank my guests, Jennifer Rankin, David Hennig and Matthew O'Toole. The producers are Yolinga Fan and Danielle Stevens, and I'm Jessica Elgott. I hope you're enjoying your summers and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.